Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Hope things are well with everyone out there. We are continuing our opponent preview series today. We've got Travis Brown, who covers Texas A&M for the Eagle. Uh, myaggynation.com got into a lot of different things kind of a macro view of Jimbo Fisher in year four which as most people know he did win the national title at Florida State in year four uh, coming off an 11-1 year so a lot of expectations to say the least and of course what everyone is wondering surrounding A&M is who is going to play quarterback because you kind of have this team that is ready to launch and they just need a signal caller so we got into the Haynes King versus Zach Calzada uh, battle is seemingly going to come down to the wire with no real edge, I guess, so far in camp and a bunch of other topics regarding the defense, replacing a couple offensive line starters. But A&M's a really interesting team in the West this year. So I appreciate Travis's time. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Hopefully you'll learn learn a thing or two about the Aggies as we uh, finish off this opponent preview series. I think there's only a couple left. So, uh, But before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel them to the top of the industry. Look, it's pretty simple. With football season coming up, you don't want the man texting you Sunday night, Monday morning, got the scaries already. You want the man playing you and skybox is the easiest way to do that with any sort of consistency you need to go check out their picks packages they've got football picks up on the site right now if you sign up for their season-long college football picks you're going to get the futures package free with it as well and with the promo code rippy you get 20 percent off uh any purchase on the site period but it also of course pertains to that package rolling along in nascar they hit Ryan Blaney at plus 1,400 on Sunday, plus 354 to win. So uh, cashed in a very lucrative weekend in NASCAR. Uh, we'll have NFL coming up right down the pipe. So you need to jump on this deal right now and go check out Skybox Sports Picks, whether it's week-long packages, month-long. I'd recommend just doing the season-long or year-long all sports. It's going to pay for itself and then some. But check them out if you're into wagering because I promise you it's going to pay off in the long run. And uh, you're going to need some sort of guidance. So Skybox is the place to do that. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Across from Kroger, if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a newsletter three to five times a week from yours truly and a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a pretty solid deal. Hell of a way to kickstart your weekend. So go check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Absolutely the best butcher shop in Mississippi in the world for that matter. Oxford's so lucky to have it. Fresh seafood, Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, bacon wrap fillets. Uh, I just got a couple photos over the weekend of uh, looked like some crab stuff, mushrooms, all kinds of delicious sides, sausages. Love, uh, love when people go visit LBs and send me photos of the hall. So let's keep that trend going. If you go in, go ahead and send me a photo, whether that's social media, email, whatever. Always love to see what people have uh, scored at Greg's store because Greg is here to make your grilling experience more enjoyable. So check them out, LBs University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, without further ado, here's Travis Brown. All right, we now welcome on Texas A&M beat writer Travis Brown covers the Aggies for the Eagle My Aggie Nation. You can find him on Twitter at Travis underscore L underscore Brown. Um, continuing our opponent preview series, series A&M, one of three left, I suppose, got Vanderbilt and Mississippi State after this. But uh, Travis, I appreciate a minute of your time. Oh, for sure. Thanks for having me. How are, uh, how are things in College Station? I know, obviously, fall camp winding down, classes getting going, I imagine, soon if they haven't started already. What is, uh, where is A&M at in terms of camp and then kind of, you know, opening opponent prep? I know it's a little different than Ole Miss because, you know, you get Kent State, which a little different opener, but where are they at kind of in camp right now? Well, I know as far as College Station goes, we're at the point, I don't know if it's like this in Oxford where – you, you are very, very aware of the fact that the college students are back in town because traffic everywhere is nuts. People are doing stupid things on the road. It just you, you think you have five minutes to get somewhere, and the next thing you know, 45 minutes later, you finally got to where you're going. So that's where we are in College Station, as it, I'm sure it is with college towns all over the place right now. But as far as fall camp goes, uh, they're, they're, they've just started into their final week before they go into game week. Uh, they had a scrimmage on 
Sunday. It was their second one of the fall. Um, and so that was probably going to be the best look game look that whatever quarterback is going to come out of the quarterback battle is going to give Jimbo Fisher for him to make ultimately make his decision on who the starter is going to be. So, uh, yeah, another week and we, we should be able to hear, we would assume we would hear something about that quarterback starter here either at the end of the week or the beginning of next week. Yeah. You just got at exactly what, like, I mean, being honest, like the main storyline around Texas A&M is absolutely that the quarterback battle, but like, so I guess before we get to that though, I'm always interested in kind of the macro view of programs in particular, but I think A&M is an interesting case, right? Because so Jimbo gets hired 18 to his first season. Everyone kind of like, kind of, I gawked. I don't know what the proper phrase would be at the 10 year, $75 million contract, but I mean, shit, you look it up two years later and like the money is pretty standard for any sort of high level program. Maybe the year, you know, decade long commitment still probably raises some eyeballs in terms of just it being an unusual contract in that sense. But after last year, it was kind of weird because a&M finally had that season, right, where they kind of finally took off. They were certainly competitive in the SEC West. I think with the scheduling, we all kind of got robbed of a later season Alabama A&M type showdown, which no one's fought. I mean, we made it through college football in the middle of a pandemic, but just kind of temperature-wise in terms of where Jimbo's at amongst fan base, you know, decision makers, whatever, what is kind of the feeling heading into year four? Because, I mean, hell, I am probably the last person to point this out. Uh, among many, he did win the national title at Florida State in year four. What is kind of the expectations versus what he's done in the last three years? What is that kind of like? Yeah, well, and to going back to the contract um, real quick, the uh, I think the thing that was the craziest about it was the guaranteeing money. Right. The fact that he's going to make all that money uh, and no matter what was going on. So there's definitely people who thought that's that risky. Um, going into year four, I mean, the expectation the, the expectation always was that the real breakout year was going to be last year because you have a senior in Kellamond who, who had had a couple of years under Jimbo Fisher's system. You had an offensive line that was full of seniors. Um, you had you, you were going to have another senior uh, wide receiver in Jamon Osmond and some guys like that. Of course, he ended up opting out uh, and, and things were looking to, and the schedule was ripe because it was the first year that they didn't have to face Clemson uh, with that home and home that they had. Uh, they were going to, it was just going to be Colorado and everything was, was going to be right for a great season. And um, so, and they, even though they went to the 10 game, all sec slates, it, it, it lived up to that expectation um, going to the, uh, being in the college football playoff uh, running and, and going to the uh, orange bowl to end the season. I think, this season just is a continuation of that. I think Jimbo Fisher has reached that point where he shows shows that be a contender. Now just staying at that level and then making the next step. I think this is a season where um, it, it'll be interesting because you return a lot. You turn almost all of your defense. You return a good chunk of the offense, especially at some skill positions. It's really just quarterback and offensive line that you have to replace, but those are two of the most important positions. So you could say that expectations are to continue moving forward, moving up, getting into that uh, college football playoff picture um, this season. But I, I think that there is a certain amount of, of that, that should probably be okay with maintaining being, being in the conversation for the playoff push at the end and, and maybe being just on the outside, making one of those New Year's six bowls again, and let that quarterback let that offensive line develop would probably be acceptable too, but it, it's somewhere in that range. Yeah. Because like, if you look at it and I know it wasn't a normal season, but I mean, how it was a one loss sec school get that gets left out of the playoff. And it was sort of unique circumstances, right? Like if A&M, let's just say over the next 15 years did that five times, they're probably getting into the playoff three of those times generously. Right. Like it was just kind of a bizarre set of circumstances. And I found the way last year played out from the COVID and everything kind of interesting, right? Cause you would probably say A&M, I don't know if overachieved is the right word, but they looked a hell of a lot better, better than maybe some people thought they would in 18 under Jimbo immediately. I remember that Clemson game. Was that, that was the one in College Station, if I'm not mistaken, was the first one in Clemson. The first one was in College Station where it came down to, it came down to the wire. Yeah, and so they had a bunch of – they seemed like they had some older guys on that team, and it was like, okay, like they're, they're going to be fine. And then, like, you kind of take a lateral step, 
in 19. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure that's like anyone's fault. That was just a natural product of where the program was at. But it was interesting last year. The Vanderbilt game like wasn't exactly an overwhelming looking victory. And then the Alabama game wasn't particularly competitive. Where would you say the turning point was in terms of like people kind of hopping on board or back on board, however you'd want to phrase it? the Jimbo ship, I imagine it was probably Florida, but like, where could you sense that this thing was actually going to get rolling and this team was really good? If you want to ask where the fans jumped back on board, it was definitely after the Florida win. If you want to ask when the team kind of made the turnaround, Jimbo has been pretty uh, adamant over the season at the fact that it was, it was kind of almost during that Alabama game towards the end when uh, they, they are realizing that, um, and then when they went back and looked at the film, they realized that there's been Alabama games in years past where they just got spanked. It was just you looked at the film and you saw this team is better than that one. This was the one of the first games that they said when they went back and looked at film that they could see how, hey, I made this one error. I, I didn't have the right leverage on this block. I ran this one route just a little bit too short and little things like that 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 caused that game last year and they, that kind of encouraged them to the fact of like, you know, we lost, but we're hanging. Um, and that, that kind of built a little bit of momentum going into that Florida game. And, and then I think the Florida game kind of snowballed everything through the season um, that, that, the, the, that I think through what they saw in the film, they felt like the margin was smaller. I mentioned a second ago, like as someone, just as like a football fan perspective, you look at it and you almost feel like you got robbed a bit. Again, no one's fault. You're trying to get through a college football season to pandemic, but getting AM and Alabama in week two, to be honest, kind of sucked. Because even if you just look at like base level statistics from that game, Kellen Mond threw the football 44 times in that game. And he only threw the ball over 30 times, I think two more times, the two more games throughout the entire season. And so I just wonder, you mentioned that being kind of a turning point. I find that interesting. Was there a certain element to them wishing, not the team wishing, like I, I guess I'm kind of speaking in, in general terms here. If they had gotten them later in the year when A&M kind of figured out this identity of we can run right the hell over you, the Auburn game really comes to mind in terms of like that identity being personified. Do you think the result would have been different and I don't even necessarily mean the outcome do you think that game would have gone more down to the wire had that thing been in I don't know late October early November well that, that's an interesting point because when you look at the schedule how it was supposed to be before COVID Alabama was the second to the last game on on the right. on the schedule and, and it was going to be Alabama LSU it was going to be 10 straight games they should win and then Alabama and LSU and and I think even before the COVID switch around, everyone thought that LSU game was going to be one to circle as well. So it was going to be a team that had built a lot of momentum into these two big games, and that was going to be the whole season. Well, the, gone was the the Colorado uh, uh, preseason match, and and they ended up getting added Tennessee, which looked scarier than it actually turned out to be, and then Florida. Florida wasn't on that schedule before. They was one of the teams that were added to make the 10-game All-SEC slate. And, and so – you can look at it one of two ways. You could say that, yes, the, the, the narrative before then was that they were going to roll through 10 games, get a lot of momentum, 10 games they should win before they get to two games that maybe they shouldn't win. And will that be a team that's battle-tested enough, healthy enough to narrow that gap? You can also go the other way and say that what Coach Fisher and the players have said, that, that Alabama call game was kind of a wake-up call. They did look at the film and see that, hey, the margins in winning and losing this game were a lot narrower. We can see the little this and that and the little X's and O's that if, if we would have just done this little, if we had been one inch here to the left or to the right, it could have changed everything. Not that we look at the film and, man, that, that's just a better team. Uh, and that gave them confidence moving forward. So it's a catch-22. I think that, yes, you could say that that was a team that developed and moved um, stronger as the season went on, but you can also say it's a team that gained confidence from what they saw in the Alabama game and then the Florida game. And I imagine some of that, like you, like you look at that, I agree with everything you said there as well. And like, but you look at it and it's Isaiah Spiller. I think I had 11 carries in that game. And I imagine that probably didn't happen again the rest of the year in terms of his workload being that, that light. And some of that's Alabama, right? I mean, the defensive front's a little bit different than anyone else you're going to see throughout the course of a season, 
But again, some of that is trying to getting two, three games in. You had the weird-ass COVID offseason where you didn't really get much of a feel for who you kind of were, and that just set everyone behind the eight ball. So, it, like, I, I just wonder if, like, they sort of found their identity after that because Texas A&M, particularly that next week against Florida, I mean, you could pick out two, three spiller runs throughout that game where they were just kind of unstoppable. Kind of adding on to just what I asked, like, at what point did, you, did they seem to kind of realize – we can ride him and then whatever Mond is capable of to supplement that is going to be okay because of how good we are defensively. Yeah. I, I think when you look at the Mond numbers in Alabama, I mean, the, 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 the gap had basically gotten to where it was pretty hefty right at, right before halftime. Uh, and so basically the whole second half was you got to patch, you got to pass to stay in the game. Um, so I think that's why those numbers were a little bit more skewed than the rest because most of the second half was just Alabama kept scoring to stay in the game. A&M had to keep passing, um, and, and there was less opportunity to run the ball. The, the interesting thing about Spiller, though, was I don't want to say it was the Florida game. It was it was a few one of the few games after that. He actually suffered suffered toe injury that nagged him for the rest of the season. So if you want to look at the second half of the Auburn game, Devon A. Chain. Uh, stepped up and started carrying a lot, uh, splitting time. And, and ultimately, the, the, the freshman was the guy who was the Orange Bowl MVP. And he the only was able to get in that position was Spiller wasn't able to go anymore. Um, and so it, I, I think they knew, I mean, Jimbo Fisher's style is ball possession and controlling time of the time of possession. He wants to just dominate time of possession. And he has ever since he got to AM. So if you look at AM stats over the years, I, I we actually I'm going to throw one of my buddies under the bus who covers AM here for one of the local TV stations. He's an OU fan, and he's always asking them, you know, what do they what do you have to do to be able to, to open up and have home run passing plays and spread the field? I don't know if that's necessarily what Jimbo Fisher wants to do. That there's going to be times when you go against certain defenses and they're loading the box that you're going to want to have a home run threat and spread the field, but he wants to keep the offense on the field, run the ball, power the ball, throw sh- short passes, take, eat up the clock. I mean, there was plenty of times in these past three years where AM has eaten up almost a whole quarter of a play in one possession uh, and just, just minimize the number of snaps that the players take, minimize injuries. Uh, and so I think that's always been a little bit of the MO. Um, but I think that when you, when they realized they have a backfield of Isaiah Spiller, of Devon A-Chain, what he was able to do, and Anaya Smith rotating out wide and back in there, that that is where the strength of the team is. So, yeah, you, you got to ride that a little bit and, and, and establish that run and then establish it again and then let that open up the passing game. And the blueprint heading into this year is probably almost a carbon copy. You're just going to have a different person calling signals. And so that's exactly probably the overarching storyline as it pertains to Texas A&M heading into this season. Is it going to be Zach Calzada or Haynes King? Just sort of, I mean, to be completely honest, until I was like prepping for this podcast, I understood the battle. I didn't really know the nuances of it. And I spent about an hour or two trying to, I even looked at a couple of decent, like decent enough breakdowns from the spring game. Again, what can you take from a spring game? But I thought there were a couple video series available where some guys made some good points about it. I'll start with kind of an open-ended question here. As you sit into the last week of camp, where do you think this battle stands? Is there any sort of edge at all? From what I'd read, it seems like it's probably a slight edge to King just from the upside, but it's not settled by any means. Would you agree, disagree, take that any direction you'd like? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessarily settled. I think that, well, I think that what they were able to do on Sunday in that second scrimmage might have settled it now. We just haven't had the opportunity to, uh, to talk and, and get Jimbo's thoughts on those yet. Um, so it could be, as we sit now, settled. Um, but as far as how we know, um, it was very much still up in the air. I, I think that from uh, he he's kept it pretty close to the vest. He's talked about what their pluses and, and their, their pros and cons are and what they're able to do well and what the other one may be able to do better. But he's really been close to the vest. And he usually has been when we were talking about going back to Kellen Mon and Nick Starkle when he first got here. So all I can really rely on is kind of my own opinion and kind of my own uh, educated guess. And, and I think that King is going to be the guy. I base that off of the thought that 
you replace four offensive line starters this year, some of them with guys who have very who have a lot of, of, of upside and potential, but have very little experience. And I think the thought process, it was kind of a little bit similar to where a and was in, in 2018 when Jimbo got here, is that you, you had to decide between the mobile guy and the true pocket passer behind an offensive line that had struggled. And I think that a lot of what Jimbo Fisher said at the time is, Kellen Mond has a good arm, but he also has the ability to extend plays to help the offensive line out a little bit when they might struggle. And that could potentially be the case again this year. I don't know. We haven't really gotten to see the offensive line really in, in work. Uh, And so I think if you're replacing four guys, you want the more mobile guy back there to give your offense a little bit more of a chance. That being said, and so my money is on Haynes King. He's also the son of a longtime high school quarterback here and a uh, high school uh, coach here in, in Longview in Texas. I mean, he, he's eat, slept, and drank football his entire life. Um, very intelligent, would be able to pick up the nuance of a pretty complicated Jimbo Fisher pro style offense, you would think, um, has had a season under his belt. If you want to be a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, we get to go out and watch practice a couple times a week. And those kind of are staggered on different days. And Fisher has said through fall camp, the guys have rotated with the first team and the second team constantly and and done different things. We get to see a little bit of first team, second team drills when we get to go out and see it in the past three or four times that we've been out there. It's been Zach Calzada. That's with the first team. Now you can't really report that steadily because it could just be the instance that we were out there every time that was his turn. But we just didn't see King in those times or Jimbo Fisher was doing a little gamesmanship and throwing out him in these drills. But King was the guy who was running with the first teamers when there was behind closed doors when we were all kicked out of practice. Um, so you, we've seen more of Calzada running with the first team and the limited, very limited amount of drills that we've been able to see. Um, but that really doesn't mean anything. So I think my money is still on King. And to add a little bit more like color and context to this situation is Calzada has got a year more experience within the system. Haynes King was a higher rated kid. I think Zach Calzada was a high ish rated three-star kid. Haynes King pretty consensus four-star kid was recruited a little bit heavier by some bigger schools. So we'll start here. Like, so you just outlined it, but if I'm asking you to make the Zach, the, Zalcada argument, excuse me, Zach Calzada argument. That's a bit of a tongue twister. I hope uh, (laughs) (laughs) thoughts and prayers to everyone trying to get that straight on TV all year. What is the Zach Calzada argument? If I asked you to make that, what is the argument for him to be the starter? He has an absolutely cannon of an arm. I mean, he can just throw the snot out of the ball uh, and he's, he's accurate. Um, and he, he, he can make his, his reads pretty well. You, some might argue that he might, I mean, he, his stats were a little bit better. He ran on both sides of the ball a little bit, uh, or both teams a little bit. Uh, but you might argue that Zach Calzada actually had a little bit better of a spring game uh, than Haynes King did. Uh, I mean, if you want to look at your very prototypical pocket passer with the strong arms who can make a, an array of throws, uh, that's Zach Calzada. And he's not when I when you say prototypical pocket passer, he's not a statue. He's not Tom Brady back there. He can run a read option. He's just Haynes King has that almost Johnny Manziel like shakiness and speed. Um, and so Calzada is an athlete. He can run a read option. He can tuck it and and, and go four or five yards if he has to pull the ball in that situation and pick up a first down. Um, but he can throw the absolute heck out of the ball. King doesn't have a, nearly as strong of an arm. Uh, and from what we've seen in practice, not necessarily quite as accurate, but he has a, a larger tool, tool belt. It really is an interesting, like, dynamic in that sense because you mentioned the Calzada and the, like, limited highlights from whatever game tape I was able to see. And I know that was only, like, one or two games in 19, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he's kind of a Bo, of like, to use an old Miss example, a Bo wallace runner, where Bo Wallace wasn't a statue, but you also wouldn't consider him a running quarterback. He was just mobile mm-hmm. enough to run the read option and kind of extend some plays with his feet, particularly when he was healthy. And so it's interesting because it seems like the consensus is most things are equal. Like, you, know, you probably give Calzada a little bit of an edge on the arm strength, like you mentioned. But in terms of just what you've seen out of them from fall camp and – 
in spring practice, if all things are equal, it probably comes down to exactly what you said, the mobility aspect of it, where Haynes King has a little bit more of an upside there, replacing four offensive linemen, son of a coach, little seemingly a little bit higher upside, even if the arm strength is not there. Like, it seems like all th- if all things are equal, the tie is going to King. Yeah, and I think that actually you want to talk a lot about the mobility and stuff. I think that the, the point to narrow in on is actually um, the, the kind of the son of the coach because when Kellen Mond had his struggles at times when he was at AM and we would ask about this interception, this read, you know, why, why is this happening with Mond? It would always go back to Mond is the guy because when Mond comes back to the sidelines after he's made the mistake – he, before I can even ask it, he's the one that said, I read this wrong because this and this guy went this way and I should have done this. And, and he, he, had, he mentally was locked in and meshed with, with Jimbo Fisher on, on what Jimbo Fisher wanted. And so that mental side of the game, being able to make the right reads, being able to work through your progressions, being able to, to manage the, the offense on the line, that's, I think, what Jimbo Fisher puts a premium on. And not to say that Zach Calzada is at all bad at this, but you have to kind of lean on the fact that a lot of what Haynes King was touted on and coming in is being that coach's son and and being able to have worked and thought through football at a high level from a young age. I think that might be actually what gives him a little bit of the edge along with the mobility and everything else. But, you know, here's the deal. I'm going to say this too. I was, I was, it was pretty much Haynes King by landslide when we were coming into fall camp. And from what I've been able to see through fall camp, if it turns out to be Zach Calzada, I wouldn't be surprised. I would have been surprised before fall camp started, but I wouldn't be surprised at this point um, if it was Zach Calzada who's running out there in the first game. How does Jimbo want to handle it in terms of there being a, you know, the proverbial cliched guy? Because it's an interesting dynamic with these first three non-conference games is you get the Kent State game to kind of figure some stuff out. And then you go on the road to Colorado and Texas A&M from a sheer talent and just being a better football team perspective should, should beat Colorado fairly handily. But I imagine you also would not want to go into that game just being like, yeah, we'll figure it out at quarterback, couple drives type of thing. Cause you know, things get pretty weird. You are playing a Pac-12 opponent on the road that is somewhat capable, but then you come back with New Mexico. That's another game where presumably you can figure it out. What chances do you give of, Jimbo playing two guys for a game or a game plus, how do you think he'll handle that before you get to the game in Arlington against Arkansas? He's going to have a guy. So uh, another thing that comes to mind when we've asked about quarterbacks in the past, how he evaluates quarterbacks and then just how he evaluates key positions. And one of the things he always does say too, is that, I mean, he, of course, ultimately makes the decision on who the guy's going to be. But part of that evaluation is the team kind of picks the guy, too. So the wide receivers, the offensive line, the running backs, it it usually becomes pretty obvious, according to him, that like this guy is meshing with the group. This is the guy that they've picked, whether they it's not necessarily verbalized, but, you know, by the actions, by the way they connect, by the way that they move the ball, by the way that the the quarterback is able to lead those guys and those guys listen and follow um, that plays a big part into it. I, and Fisher believes strongly in that philosophy. So to run two guys out there and say, it's still open, we're just going to give both guys some time and, and kind of figure it out fully goes against that idea of how he sees the quarterback emerging as as the guy as as qb1 so i i don't see that now with you, you there is the good point that w- if it was kellen mond and um you know who your guy is going to be or whatever would kellen go all the way through the third quarter of a blowout kent state game maybe and, and would maybe calzada get a little bit more time in a blowout game um just to keep him fresh to see how things are going in case when they do hit a tougher competition things get shaky. Yes. I don't think Jimbo Fisher is, is not, is, is above making a quarterback switch it deep in the game, the, the season or, or as the season moves on. But I do think that he is big on picking a guy and that's going to be the guy. Yeah, absolutely. And so last thing on the quarterback aspect of it, because it does sound like they do want to decide on a guy early. 
what to draw an old miss parallel to this it does remind me of some like it does have some similarities to old miss's quarterback battle in 2015 they lost a three-year starter in bo wallace they had two kids on the roster that they recruited in ryan buchanan and Devontae kincaid but it seemed very adamant that that they weren't 100 sold on either one of those guys and so they went and got chad kelly from junior college and while kelly ended up beating out buchanan in what was probably in terms of fall camp a slightly closer race than maybe some people wanted to give it credit for it was clear that chad kelly the newcomer the transfer was going to be the starter because of just the tremendous upside and so i'm just curious after kellen mon leaves was there ever any sort of exploration into the portal to bring in to transfer a kid? Cause the, I guess the way I should have led this question was Ole Miss was a team that was ready to launch. Like they were ready to compete in the sec West in 2015, Texas A&M is absolutely that. And probably to a higher degree this year, was there ever any thought giving to going into the portal or do you think that just kind of speaks to the confidence that they have in both of these kids? Cause they both seem talented but it's just interesting to rely on two newcomers when everything else is almost a known commodity, Sam's the offensive line. You raise a good point, and I'm going to answer that. But first, because you brought up a, a flashback name from my past two and Devontae Kincaid, I got to drop my Devontae, my, my favorite Devontae Kincaid adjacent story. Okay, uh, bring I actually, it on. Before I came down here to College Station, I worked um, – at ESPN Dallas covering high schools up in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And uh, uh, of course, Devontae Kincaid now is one of the big reasons why SMU up there is pulling in um, these big four and five star recruits that no one expected. But uh, it wasn't actually talking. Devontae Kincaid was a great interview and I covered him a lot of times. It actually wasn't talking to him. It was after he lost, which I believe was his senior year in the playoffs, to Allen High School and won a young sophomore named Kyler Murray. Oh, yeah. And, Some may have and, heard of him. And I, I hadn't actually I, – I, I talked to Kyler several times when he was in high school. This is the first time I got to talk to him because it was his first season at the helm. And so I want to go over there and say – and ask him because, you know, you, Devontae Kincaid was – the dual threat quarterback extraordinaire out of Dallas. He was the guy like everyone. If you were talking about dual threat guys who had all the tools, it was Devontae Kincaid. Kyler just beat him. So I wanted to ask him like, Hey, does it mean a little bit something more to you to, to notch this huge playoff win? One of the highly anticipated games of that weekend, beating a guy that you would potentially be, you're going to be that next big dual threat guy to come out of Dallas. And I kid you not, that was the only time in my career covering high schools that I got no commented. <laughs> Kyler Murray said, no comment. Next question. As a sophomore in high school, uh, talking about his relationship and being with Devontae Kincaid. So I, I love that story. No one else, because no one else really remembers who Devontae Kincaid is. So I, I'm, I'm now giddy to get to share it with people who actually know who that guy is. It's almost like Devon, uh, Kyler Murray was pretty polished and uh, had his plethora of options as to what professional sport he wanted to play. That man seems yeah. ready made to, to play professional something at the age of about 16 years old. Well, and, and you know, in hindsight, it's comparing Kyler Murray to Devontae Kincaid now seems like a, uh, a pretty silly uh, comparison. But going back to your question, yeah, I don't think Jimbo Fisher and AM ever were really that concerned with looking to the portal because these are both guys that they recruited, they brought in, they wanted to be the future of the program. And um, uh, I, I, I don't think that was ever really considered. I get your point, and it's actually an interesting one to think about, thinking that that is a hole, so why not fill it with uh, a guy? But but there is this is an interesting dilemma, too, in that, yeah, they're newcomers, and this is going to be the first year as a starter, but – Zach Calzada has been in the system for two years and Haynes King a, a year himself um, because of COVID and everything else going on. So it's not, I mean, they're, they're really, Zach Calzada in, in, in essence is really a redshirt junior and Haynes King is a, is a sophomore. Uh, and so, yeah, that's still young, but um, it's not your traditional type of newcomer. And as I mentioned, kind of going elsewhere, like it's it's it is a team that seems ready to launch and build uh, off of last year. I mean, you return nine starters on the defensive side of the football, but like the 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 I guess big question mark aside from the quarterback position is 
replacing four offensive linemen, right? I mean, you get Kenyon Green back, but he's going to switch, I believe, from guard to tackle, which is not like a like a some sort of seismic shift, but it does require a little bit more athleticism, a little bit different skill set. How give me the best and worst case scenario for this offensive line? Because I think if there is one hangup for this AM team that you would expect to compete in the SEC West. If you can't block anybody, everything else is moot. And I know there are, you know, the covered is not necessarily, not even close to bear from a recruiting perspective, but like, what is, give us kind of a look at what that looks like, both from a top end and a depth standpoint. Cause when you come back only returning one starter, that's a, uh, particularly in a position like offensive line, that's not, that's not insignificant. Yeah. So, I mean, it's again, it's a little bit different situation because if you, a lot of the guys that they do have to replace guys have been in the program for, for, for a decent amount of time. And they're, they're a year ahead of where you would normally be. So it's not the normal replacing. We'll start with, with Kenyon green. And I mean, he is, he is an, an all American talent, of course, from what he was able to do last year. And a lot of guys say he could be one of the best offensive linemen to come out. If you look at the mock drafts, one of the best offensive linemen to come out of this draft class uh, coming into to next season. Um, he, he, he has the athleticism. That's the one thing that everyone says is if you look at his weight, which I don't have in front of me right now, but if you look at his, his weight, he's a big guy and he shouldn't be able to athletically do the kinds of things that he's doing. So I think that's one of the reasons why they've looked at him and moved him for, for at time out to, um, to left tackle, but he's been moving. It, it was, it was a pretty foregone conclusion. It seemed like that's where he was going to be coming into fall camp. And he's actually moved around a little bit. He's moved back into guard. Some uh, moved over to the right side at tackle. Uh, some of that is Fisher wanting his guys to be versatile in a lot of different positions, because if you have a, crazy game where like two guys go down hurt um, you might have to move some guys and, and fill some places and, and, and be in some positions where guys not don't normally play, but you just to put your best five out there, you, you have to kind of shuffle some stuff around. And so it could be a little bit of that, but um, yeah, he's been, he's been moving around a little bit. So we'll be interested to see if, if that's um, what he apparently lands. But um, I, I think if the other good part about this is they have uh, Jameer Johnson, who is a transfer from Tennessee coming in a grad transfer who has plenty of years of, of SEC play under his belt. So while he's not technically a returning starter, he's a returning starter for another school that they were able to bring in. And he'll probably solidify, you would think the right tackle side, unless they've kind of uh, moved some stuff around in the middle at center, he, there, there could be a chance that he's gotten a little bumped and bruised over fall camp. We need to follow up on this, but assuming he is uh, healthy, uh, you got Luke Matthews coming in at center, who is the youngest brother of a long line of Matthews family members who have gone to the NFL. Uh, and, and Jimbo Fisher joked this summer that the, the only thing he's really, really frustrated with with the Matthews family, they didn't have another kid that he could have coached more than just one uh, while he was at a and um, I, I think uh, Aki Ogumbi, I need to check that pronunciation, is a guy that's probably going to slot into right guard, I believe. Um, and, and he's the guy that Jimbo Fisher has he says sometimes the, 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 the leverage he gets and kind of blocks and, or, and, and, and those throws that he's able to make with guys looks like a cartoon character just with how strong he is. I think he's definitely slotted into that, that starting lineup as well. So, um, and then Layden Robinson, you have some other guys, they're guys that have been talked about for several years as, going to emerge to be starters for AM and this is their year. So you look back at 2018, I mean, there was years, I think 20, even 2017 under Kevin Sumlin, there was years that they were so unsure of what the offensive line was going to look like. They had line changes where they would send five guys out there to run a couple of series and then send five completely different guys out there to try to make something happen. Uh, it's certainly not going to be, like that. I think that they're going to be pretty solid on the guys that they know and be pretty confident with them. Uh, so it, 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 it's a, it's a little bit more secure for AM fans. It's a little bit more secure feeling uh, uh, rotation in to with guys than maybe some years where it's like, who are these guys coming in and, and what can they do? How many guys like to, how many guys are in that mix? Because like, I guess to kind of use Ole Miss as like a mirror parallel is they have decent 
decent enough depth, but they're a little thin on the exterior. So if they like lost a tackle earlier in the year, it could potentially become problematic. But as you mentioned, and Ole Miss has been in this situation years past where, yeah, you are replacing quite a few guys on the offensive line, but it's not like, oh, hell, which freshman are you going to get ready to play? Or in 2019, they had a kid that was like a converted tight end that they were just trying to make work at tackle, which is never a great experiment to have going into a season where it sounds like more so that this is more kids that have been there two and three years that are ready to kind of take the step and actually become starters, which is huge because, as I've mentioned multiple times, and this is pretty well known, like the plug-and-play on the offensive line in the SEC doesn't really happen outside of a few elite prospects. Matthews potentially being one of them, and I imagine that center position would be huge because he's pretty good. You could get by with some average guard play. How deep could they go? Like, could they withstand, like, one or two injuries on the offensive line, or is it – Get the front-end guys right and just hope you stay healthy. I, I think they could probably withstand one or two injuries. I think that it's certainly what you said, the latter, of, of the fact that they've kind of known that these are going to be the guys eventually. This year just happens to be the year where these guys are going to start to take front and center. And so I think individually, if you look at the skill sets of these guys, their size, their athleticism, individually, they, they have every they, – they, they certainly have the means to be good – as starters on this level. I think what I've seen, especially in that 2017 year where the offensive line shouldn't have been as bad as it was. There's sometimes where it just, it just doesn't gel. I'm, I'm actually, and this could just go completely over some of your listeners heads because I'm weird like this, but I'm a huge hockey fan. And you can look at guys where you put guys on a line and there's their three all-star talents but they just don't work because they don't have that chemistry. They don't, they don't feed off of each other. Well, they, they just don't work, even though on paper, it should be this superstar line. It works like that with offensive lines too. And, and the only thing that I could see holding this offensive line back is just that, uh, that, that, that not meshing that, that not syncing up together and, and having chemistry because individually, as far as the way these guys came in and their recruiting rankings and what we have heard, they should individually be able to step right in the position and do well. You return pretty like the AM returns pretty much everything at, at receiver and at wide receiver. And I think they could potentially have one of the better, if not the best tight end in the country. So like skill position, they seem pretty set. Like there's not a whole lot to go over there. So I guess it kind of in closing before we move to the other side of the ball in your mind, and this seems to all hinge on two positions that we just spent about a half an hour talking about. What do you, what do you think the best in like, what is the best version of this A&M offense? And if they do struggle, why would that be? The best version of this offense is one where uh, Isaiah Spiller and Devon A-Chain can, can really rack up the yards, establish the run, which opens up the pass. You'll probably see a lot of play action pass um, out of this offense. Um, the, the one group to, to, to kind of take an asterisk on is actually you, they return a lot of wide receivers, but it was a lot of wide receivers that didn't have a whole lot of production um, the past two years. The one guy that actually was probably going to be the lead, I mean, Anaya Smith is going to be the leader of the group, but the older leader of the group is going to be Hezekiah Jones. And he actually messed up his shoulder and was in a sling this week. And, and Jimbo Fisher was kind of wishy-washy on when he might be back. So um, that could be actually be a significant blow. They haven't really since Ricky Seals Jones has been here. They haven't had that deep go up and get the ball kind of threat guy. They've really been a group that's been like four wide of slot receivers. The guy that could might that could very well be that guy this year is Caleb Chapman. He had two big touchdowns against Florida, but actually ended up tearing his ACL on that second touchdown on a deep play. Um, it'll be interesting to see how well he's able to come back, how 100% he is um, um, at, at, the, uh, at the wide receiver position. And if he still has that same speed and, and mobility um, coming off the ACL injury that just happened uh, less than a year ago. Um, the worst case scenario is the offensive line can't block, doesn't have a cohesion, and they can't establish the run uh, and are forced to rely on the, whoever the quarterback is in there to find a group of wide receivers that are veteran, but decently unproven and a tight end and Jalen Weinemeyer, who's probably going to get doubled every time in that situation as well. When you, if you become one dimensional in the pass with them, I, I think that would probably cause some problems. Fair enough. And then defensive side of the ball, you return, I mean, they return nine of 11 starters, 
But there are two pretty impactful guys to replace. Uh, to pick either one you kind of want to go to, but, like, which one do you think is the more difficult to replace, whether that's on the defensive line or at linebacker, and how has that kind of gone through camp so far? Yeah, it's got – the, the, the tougher one to replace was going to be Buddy Johnson, uh, who's the linebacker. I mean, Bobby Brown was a highly touted prospect, went went high in the draft and, uh, and was going to, you know, be a guy. But they have a solid rotation – uh, and even when Bobby Brown was doing his thing last year and recording, like, I think it was five straight sacks in five games, um, they still were rotating guys in, rotating them out, keeping things fresh. They have Jaden Peavy, who is a fifth-year player who is returning. They have McKinley Jackson. Uh, they have uh, they have a lot of options to rotate in. There's, that, there's so much depth there that I don't think you're going to see Bobby Brown missed that much. And returning guys like DeMarvin Leal, who can go inside and outside, who's a great pass rusher. You want to see what comes out of Michael Clemens and Tyree Johnson on the edge. They should get a bit, little bit better edge rush this season than they have in the last handful of seasons, which will help take a little bit pressure off that defensive line. Buddy Johnson was not only the tackle leader, he was the defensive side's leader. He was the heart and soul and energy of that defensive side last year. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get that same kind of, I think they will, but it'll, Interesting they could give that same kind of effort. They have Aaron Hansford coming back, who was uh, Buddy Johnson's partner in the 425. Um, and uh, he will move over into that middle position, I believe, and, and kind of take over that leadership role. He was a guy that had a senior bowl invite last year, but turned it down to be able to come back and play another year. Um, and then the other guy, I think you're going to, there's going to be a little bit of rotation. You have Andre White, you have Edrin Cooper, you have, um, Oh, who's the other one? Uh, um, uh, there's there's a decent rotation of guys who who um, uh, Chris Russell is the other one who who have some experience, uh, especially in some they, they like to do some creative stuff in third down packages that bring some more linebackers on the field. And uh, Andre White was actually a guy who kind of separated himself uh, in that position two years ago. I believe he had a big game at Old Miss uh, two years or. It was when it was raining two years ago um, that 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 I believe he had an interception or a fumble recovery late, and that was kind of his coming out party. Edrin Cooper was a guy he actually led the team in tackles in the spring game, uh, kind of out of nowhere, and, and and could very well be a, a guy that that steps in there and, and takes on that role. So I think there's probably more eyes on who is going to be that second linebacker than who the defensive line is going to be because that's pretty well solid and and set. Yeah, because Clemens was the guy. He had like four sacks or something in five games before he had some kind of ankle issue, if I'm not mistaken. Like that guy was pretty productive when he was on the field. He just missed the second half of last year. So it seems like there's more in the cupboard on the defensive line from a depth perspective. What is that – like what is the second – like what has kind of been the quest to replace the – be the second linebacker been like? Because when you kind of look at it, it seems like a and it's not necessarily a top-end issue. You're probably a little bit more concerned about depth at linebacker than you would be up front because, I mean, the secondary returns intact, so it really seems like those two slots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, it'll – the last time we asked about it, they said that they're – I mean, I, I, I honestly think you'll probably see a rotation of, of guys coming in at linebacker. Um, they, they, there can be – like they've done on the defensive line – um, especially in different situations, different third down packages, things like that. You might see some different guys rotate in and, and see who sticks. There can be a little bit more of a tryout period um, moving with um, uh, the linebackers and maybe when we we're talking about the quarterback battle. I think Aaron Hansard's pretty well locked in at one of those positions, and I think there will be different situations, different instances where Andre White can step up and do some things when Chris Russell can step up, Edrin Cooper can step up. That, there'll probably be a little bit of a rotation there as the season uh, gets started. Um, uh, secondary is interesting. They do return four starters. Um, they, they, the two cornerbacks, Jalen Jones and Miles Jones, great talents, and I think will be two of the better cornerbacks in the country. Damani Richardson, uh, still somewhat young, uh, but has a lot of experience in his belt and has been able to do a lot of things. Leon O'Neill is always an interesting one that, f- from my perspective, because he is a guy that has the ability to make an absolutely unbelievable type play, great athleticism, but he's, he's a guy that plays with a lot of emotion. He can be a little bit of a hothead. 
he can be a little bit of a guy who maybe who 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 if he doesn't if he blows a coverage or blows an assignment on one play, that's going to carry over into the next play. And then maybe the next play, the next thing you know, in three straight plays, he's been picked on and they've scored a touchdown. Uh, but then he might come back the next drive and get a pick. You know, he, he, it's a little bit of a question mark there. They, they, they finished with a top 10 defense in the country. I believe a top five defense uh, in the country from last season. Their run defense was top five. Their pass defense was 56, which again, I'm, there's, uh, you know, a hundred and, you know, uh, about 200 more schools that would love to have that kind of defense that are behind them. But I, I think that if they want to reach that next elite level, it will be interesting to see how well that uh, pass defense can shut down. And, and honestly, I actually did a little questionnaire for our paper today, looking forward to the season. And the game that I circled that could be the biggest hangup is actually Ole Miss with what uh, y'all are able to do offensively and with how Ole Miss is able to move the ball through the air um, effectively. I know like Mississippi state passes it like 5,000 times a game, but they're not, haven't necessarily been effective and they weren't effective last year. But if you, if you can effectively move the ball through the air, that's exactly how Alabama beat them last year was burning them on uh, burning that secondary on verticals to Jalen Waddle and, uh, to, to all, all kinds of guys. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think that while the secondary will be solid, when you look at a game like Ole Miss, how solid, how much improvement have they made? Yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a shame that they, the two didn't get to play last year because of COVID because, you know, so much was made about the Ole Miss offense and mostly rightfully so. I mean, they were pretty electric. I mean, I think that Alabama game that, fourth fifth game of the season whatever it was kind of really put that on center stage but I think a lot of people forget that as good as Alabama defense was A&M was the A&M led the SEC in total defense last year and while Mm -hmm. the passing defense might have been a bit of Achilles heel I just wonder if Ole Miss was not able to run the football with any sort of consistency in that game what like how would Matt Corral have reacted to that a&M secondary because Corral had two tests last year where he didn't necessarily, he didn't, Arkansas went with some sort of weird zone coverage that really just kind of put his brain in the pretzel for the lack of a better phrase. He threw five picks at LSU, but you could probably give him a little bit more of an excuse there because they were shorthanded. It was, they were in the rain, they were trailing. He was just for the lack of a better phrase, trying to make shit happen. And so there's context to be had in both of those, but I just wonder how he would have done against that AM defense if the run game hadn't been there. I just found that one of the more fascinating what ifs. And that's probably a great transition because the last thing I wanted to get with, get to before we got out of here was the schedule. The schedule is interesting for AM to say the least because they get the four home games, they get the neutral site with Arkansas. And of the four games they will play in College Station, I'd feel pretty confident in saying they will win three of them. I believe that's Arkansas, Mississippi State, and Auburn. I don't think they should have much trouble with that one, which really kind of all comes down to that October 9th game against Alabama. And they paid Jimbo Fisher $75 million to win the West. Like, they, they paid for him to be in the mix every year and to win, you know, I don't know however many times you want to give it. I won't put a ratio or a number on it. Fair, unfair, this is year four, and if they are unable to do it this year, you go to Tuscaloosa in 2022, I guess that would be. Not that they couldn't win. Not too many people do. How important – this is a terrible question, but like, how important is that October night game against Alabama and College Station? I mean, I think it's going to ultimately decide the SEC West, which is, again, a, you know, a real hot take. Um, but, uh, yes – I don't think that they're with, with what Alabama has been able to do. I think that it is really easy to sit, sit back and say Jimbo Fisher was hired to come in there, beat Alabama, win national championships. You, you can argue too though, the fact that if they keep, if they went out and they lose to Alabama by a touchdown or pull off what they did against Clemson, you know, in that Jimbo Fisher's first year where it came down to basically a two point conversion at the end, they're going to the playoff, like, right. you know, and, and so the, the, with the way the playoff is and the way the SEC has been able to, to really excel in the playoff, you don't actually have to beat Alabama to make it to the playoff. If they bring it close, you know, and then Alabama blows Georgia out in the SEC title game, 
A&M could get into the playoff with actually without beating Alabama. So I think it's big. I think people will want that game. I don't think, I, I think the thing to watch, and I know probably there's A&M fans out there that would hate this answer, but I think really from a, an athletic director's seat, the thing to watch is, is that margin getting smaller? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the score. It's kind of like what we talked about when you watch the film. Do you watch film and see this is one team who is just completely out of the league of the other team? Or is this one team that shot themselves in the foot a few times? And Alabama is a team that if you give the, if you make a mistake, they're going to take advantage of it every time. That margin for error is just so small. It, which one of those is it? And I think if it's the you're shooting yourself in the foot and giving them a chance, but that margin is smaller. I mean, that, what else can you ask for? Because again, if you, if, if that's the game and they lose to Alabama by seven points by a field goal, uh, run the rest of the table, I, there's no way that they're not going in the playoff. So, uh, I mean, unless, you know, then there's the whole, what, what did Georgia do, but they're going to have a way better strength of schedule uh, than Georgia will be just by because the SEC who who can do anything in the SEC East besides maybe Florida. And the benefit of AM schedule on top of that too is if you're talking about truly tough road tests with respect to October 16th at Missouri, with two kids that have not had a lot of experience, you could make an argument that AM's two toughest road tests both come in November with it being Ole Miss and then LSU to end the year, which is a hell of a lot better than say having Haynes King or whoever is the quarterback go into Bryant Denny September 22nd or something. And, you know, kind of put your big boy pants on kid. Like it does set up well in that regard. And so I'm just curious, like, do you have a, a prediction for A&M in terms of like win loss wise, because it does seem to me like it's really three prong. Cause I don't, I really don't think they're going to have a ton of trouble with anyone else. I mean, they don't really face, I mean, they don't really face the bulk of the East in terms of Florida, Georgia. Uh, I'm actually a little bit more bullish on Kentucky this year than maybe in years past. They don't face any of them. So it's the Alabama game. And then I guess your prediction on is whether or not they survive Ole Miss and LSU and really LSU. Cause I, I don't think Ole Miss, if Ole Miss has, it in the cupboard defensively to be in the game with teams like AM. I'd like to see it on the field first because, like, when you think go through Old Miss's schedule, it's like outside of Alabama because they go to Tuscaloosa, there are 11 winnable games. I don't think Old Miss is going 11 and 1, they're 10 and 2, but you could make a case for all of them with AM kind of being the one that probably straddles the fence of that. And the straddle the fence leaning towards winnable is probably the fact that it's in Oxford, but again, wouldn't put that likely. As you go down a and M schedule, do you have a prediction on who, like, kind of what a win-loss record would look like? It seems to be ten and two or bust, like at minimum. I mean, I think ten and two would be a, a disappointment. I think I think they have it in them to go eleven and one. Uh, I, I don't think they are beating Alabama. I think that the closest game they're going to face is going to be Ole Miss. I think that one will probably come down to the wire. the The only thing, I mean, as much as a rival as a And M has in the sec is, is LSU. You go to the swamp, you have a young guy who hasn't faced the swamp. If A&M is and LSU have done what they people expect them to do, probably going to be a primetime game. Weird things happen there, but it's also the last game of the season. So by that time, whoever your quarterback is, if they've met those expectations, he's not really a freshman anymore. He's amassed a lot of really big wins uh, that season in a lot of tough environments. And so um, I, I really do think it comes down to the Ole Miss. So I think 11 and one is, is what a and going to do. I don't think they're going to make the playoff though. I think they will be just on the outside again. Um, and then for, uh, of interest to y'all, I actually am picking my SC West had Alabama, Texas, A&M, Ole Miss, LSU, Auburn um, to, to finish. I, 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 I'm really high on, on Ole Miss. I think that that offense is going to, um, trip some people up because it, it does some different things and get, provides some different looks than than a lot of teams in in the country does and and you you will be able to to outshoot some of these teams in in the SEC for sure I mean even the top end competition it kind of would look like the Alabama game last year where 
That game, like Ole Miss, I never thought they were going to win that game, but it was like, hell, they're in it. Like, it is technically seven points in the fourth quarter. They just need to be confident defensively. I mean, we've had the, we've had this discussion in nauseam on this podcast. If they had a top 60 defense, Ole Miss could have an actual case to go 10-2, and two, which is kind of wild to think about. The disparity is just so, so, so large. So I'm curious to see what that looks like on paper. And to your LSU point, if things don't go well for LSU early on, who the hell knows who the coach is at that point and what kind of buy-in that that team has on th- – I guess that game – is that game on Thanksgiving again or is that – uh, No. Saturday yeah, they after? Moved, they moved it off. It's the Saturday after. That's what I thought. So late November, like who the hell knows what's left of LSU at that point? So A&M's kind of set up for a fascinating – particularly a fascinating November. Before I let you go, though, I'd be remiss. Ross Bjork, uh, fond memory, some non-so-fond memories for a lot of the people listening to this podcast. This is just mainly out of my own curiosity. How would you gauge the job he's done since taking over in College Station? Because from an outsider's perspective, he, I don't want to say fell upward, but I'm going to say fell upward into the largest athletic budget in the country. It seems like, hey, here's this nice-ass car. Please just don't run it off into the gutter. Like, how, how is that, how is the fan base, whomever, decision makers felt the job he's done to this point? Yeah, that's that's a really tough question to answer because, um, I mean, not only – well, I, I think right now his stock would be higher than it has been since he got here because he just made his first big hire and he was able to pull in the big fish that they want in, in baseball coach Jim Schlossnagel um, from, from TCU. So I, I think that, that – and if you look across the board, if in the major sports, if those – guys that they have now are able to live up to the expectation of, of when they hired them, he might not really have to make any hires for a while right. because you got Jimbo. Uh, the, Buzz is an interesting one. We'll see, have to see how he bounces back from a bad year last year. And I have stock in Buzz though. He always, like, I mean, the cover was bare. I have some stock in Buzz. So I think you're dead on with that. Yeah. And so you, you, you have a point with your analogy about the car in that he, he might not have to make a whole lot of big moves and ADs are usually always judged by their hires um, in the coaches. Now, all that to be said, how crazy of a year it is to try to gauge any athletic director when having to deal with COVID and COVID restrictions and this and that and whatever. Um, so, you know, if you pulled a hundred Aggies, a hundred Aggies would probably give you different answers, but there would probably be a majority of them that said they're, they're very happy with what um, he's been able to do. There'd probably be some in there who would dock him just because they had to wear a mask in Kyle field last year. You know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't exactly know the best way to gauge that, but everything that's gone on so far has made a and as a athletic program uh, better from what he's been able to do. And uh, so I think that, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, he's not getting any bad reviews. The only, really and truly, the only thing that you might, any kind of outsider might be able to dock him for is being completely oblivious to the whole Texas OU to the SEC news coming in. But from what I've heard in conversations I've had, that, that was completely out of control. There was some higher, higher, higher ups above him that we're making sure that this was going through. And, and so you can't really knock him for that because that was going to be out of his control, almost reg- regardless of anything he did. Yeah. And what, it, honestly, here's a, here's a take for you. Even if he knew, as you said, what's he going to do? And I think like the only thing he could do was kind of sort of what he did in that sec media day scene where he kind of like, bowed his chest up a little bit and kind of played the fake tough guy. And I don't mean that in like a, like a a dig to Bjork, the fake tough guy. That was the only thing he could do. Right. Like he's not going to go in front of a group of reporters and be like, hell yeah, this is awesome. I love this. Like he kind of said what his fan base and the people that signed his paycheck wanted him to say. Whereas in reality, there's wasn't actually anything he was going to do. And that's sort of like, bravado fair or unfair is actually sort of what got him in trouble at Ole Miss there were times where he'd kind of poke his chest out at easy victories but then at the same time he was very reflexive and defensive in terms of handling the NCAA investigation so like him being in the dark however much in the dark he was might have actually helped the perception a little bit because like if even if he had known like what is he actually going to do the answer is probably yeah 
Yeah, and, and, and the powers that be above his head and at the SEC and within state government in Texas wanted that thing to get pushed through. And so there was nothing he was going to do. And I, from every conversation I have had, um, he, he was he was in the dark on that. So the, the party line from the, the alumni, the boosters that give money, the, 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 the important people within the fan base as it went, in regards to playing ET was always that's only going to happen if it's in the playoff. They, they did not want to play UT there. There, there is sections of the fan base that did want to play, but the money said no. And so that was, then became Ross Bjork's party line is no, because the fan base says no. And so of course, when it comes to this, this news story that comes out that, well, it looks like a going to be playing Texas a lot more. The, 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 the answer that the, the, the party line that he has put out for years has been, no, it's not going to happen. And he just said the same. Ultimately, he said the same thing he's been saying for three years. It just was with a little bit different circumstances. And, and, and he didn't have any of the other information to say likewise. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I doubt few people at this point would actually hold anything, uh, uh, any of that on him. And beyond that, I mean, they, they, he got beer in Kyle Field and hired Jim Schlossnagel. He's made a lot of friends. <laughs> Good for Ross. He is Travis Brown. Uh, check him out the pages of the Eagle, theeagle.com, my Aggie Nation, uh, on Twitter at Travis underscore L underscore Brown. Man, this was great stuff. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the time. I didn't give you a time link, but I guarantee I would have lied and said it was shorter. This was great stuff. <laughs> I really appreciate it, man. And uh, if I can ever return the favor, let me know. And we'll uh, maybe catch up game week. Sounds good. And that was Travis Brown. Appreciate his time as always. Really fascinated by AM this year. Uh, I thought he kind of gave some pretty good insight on what, what could hold this team back and uh, what could really prepare them to, I guess, launch again after an 11-1 season. So really interested to see how they shake out in the West. That October 9th game against Alabama is going to be great, great stuff. So that's all we had for today. Uh, we'll be back with Mailbag Friday. I think I'm going to bring LB's Greg back on. And then uh, – winding down our opponent preview i might do a weekend podcast maybe something in the middle of the week next week because i want to do the normal game week content it's kind of snuck up on me it's kind of crazy that uh you know this time next week Ole miss will be a couple of days away from uh you know playing a football game so uh i got a couple of different things in the works and uh we will get into some more traditional game week stuff next week but back at it with mailbag friday won't drop the ball this time on mailbag friday i promise so send in your questions please and uh have a great rest of your Wednesday, Thursday, and we will catch you again on Mailbag Friday.